Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Republican Party without plans, policies or a platform now running on trolling an 82-year-old man who just got beaten over the head by an intruder in a home invasion. Joining us is Michael D'Antonio and we will discuss our mean culture and the leading GOP figures who traffic in cruel jokes at the expense of victims and the vulnerable. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting at Newsday before going on to write many acclaimed books including Atomic Harvest, The Truth About Trump, Never Enough, Donald Trump in the Pursuit of Success, and most recently co-authored with Peter Eisner, High Crimes, The Corruption, Impunity and Impeachment of Donald Trump. A contributor to CNN, we will discuss his latest article at CNN, Donald Trump Jr. is his father's son. Then we'll examine how conspiracy theories are entering the mainstream in the Republican discourse as we count down to a critical election a week away and speak with Ann Nelson, a research scholar who previously taught journalism and public affairs at Columbia University. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris, and her latest book is Shadow Network, Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. Her recent article at the New Republic is a rare peek inside the vast right-wing conspiracy, and we will discuss how we could be living through a moment similar to Germany in the 1930s, when fascism was just around the corner and a passive public did not awaken to the danger until it was too late. Then finally, we'll get an update on today's election in Israel, which is trending towards a victory for Benjamin Netanyahu to reclaim power and preside over one of the most right-wing governments in the country's history. Joining us is Dr. Guy Ziv, a professor at American University School of International Service, where he teaches courses on U.S.-Israel relations and Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. He has worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking and is the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. And joining us now is Michael D'Antonio, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting at Newsday before going on to write many acclaimed books, including Atomic Harvest, The Truth About Trump, Never Enough, Donald Trump and the Pursuit of Success, and most recently co-authored with Peter Eisner, High Crimes, The Corruption, Impunity and Impeachment of Donald Trump. And he's a contributor to CNN, where his latest article is, Donald Trump Jr. is his father's son. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael D'Antonio. Thank you. Great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And uh, the reference to Donald Trump Jr. being his father's son, of course, comes from the disgusting picture that uh, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted out, a picture of a pair of underpants over which there was a hammer. And he wrote the caption, I've got my Paul Pelosi Halloween costume ready. So... What's going on here with the GOP becoming the party of trolls and the fact that there's support out there for this kind of venom and and meanness? Are we becoming a mean society? Well, I think we always have had this in our midst, that there have always been people who love to poke at others. There's a whole set of 
trolling uh, items where people talk about liberal tears and very much want to hurt other people. And I think that the more extreme you can be, the more attention you get. And finally, Donald Trump proved that trolling works in politics. Can you imagine uh, any other former president doing what he does on a regular basis in his speeches, uh, castigating people, spreading lies, and making fun of anyone and everyone? This is just beyond anything we've experienced before, entirely new. Unfortunately, it works. Well, if you compare it to Jimmy Carter, who's had a more successful post-presidency than his presidency, he's been building houses, Habitat for Humanity, for low-income people. And, you know, he's doing the Lord's work compared to Trump, who's doing the devil's work. Well, you just uh, used a few words that I think are very resonant here. One is uh, humanity, Habitat for Humanity. There's not much interest in expressing humanity or showing concern for the rest of humanity, I think in part because it requires so much vulnerability to act in a humane way. You you have to commit yourself emotionally, and these folks just don't do that. I'm not sure they can do it. And the other thing you mentioned was the Lord's work. And isn't it astounding that all this depraved content is enjoyed and uh, sent along on other platforms by people who profess to be such committed Christians? And for them, it's an identity that combines resentment, uh, grasping for superiority and hostility that becomes almost assaultive. You know, and I want to point out one other key element of this that I wasn't able to wrap into the article about the general hatred. And that is that in both Donald Trump Sr.'s penchant for trolling and his son's, there's ample homophobia. And actually, the post that Junior issued about Paul Pelosi, right below it was a post that was grotesquely homophobic. And his father talks about sending journalists to prison where they can be raped. And I don't know what's going on specifically with these folks that they focus on violence and this anti-gay propaganda, but there's something twisted in all of this and something tragic for the rest of us. Yeah, Trump referred to sending journalists to jail so they'll become the bride of another prisoner. And, of course, the uh, appalling stuff that Donald Trump Jr., along with Elon Musk, Denise D'Souza and others have been tweeting out. It's the the notion that Paul Pelosi was having a a gay lover's quarrel with the man who used a hammer to smash his head in and and fracture his skull. So there's meanness along with depravity. 
So tell us about, though, your article talks about an important essay that was written in the 1990s by Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, defining deviancy down. So are we, in, are we circling the drain in that regard? Well, what he wrote about, I think, was very uh, disturbing, but also drew on some pretty widely accepted sociological research that showed that there is this limited supply of social control or social uh, standards for people where we can only police so much. And the previous work was done on crime, and it indicated how certain crimes uh, leave the law books or are no longer enforced. It could be things like prostitution, um, where the police decide that this is not worth it. The society agrees and uh, goes along with it. And so you wind up not having this be a problem, and the pursuit of problems goes after something more acute and that's where the idea of what's deviant in one moment is no longer deviant in another. But Moynihan took it further to talk about social standards, um, standards of communication, of relationships, of politics, to say that there is this downward tendency where we can sink to the lowest common denominator if there isn't a counterweight, if there's not someone with authority who's respected, who elevates the discourse. And presidents used to play that role somewhat. Um, so did other politicians. Um, our public people uh, were standard bearers. Uh, you know, and I, I don't want to go back to the days when athletes presented a not-quite-human perfection for children to live up to. But I think if we had a situation that was pre-Trump, where there was some attempt at civility and there would be widespread condemnation against something awful, we would be in a good place. But as you can see in this instance... Many, many Republicans are reluctant to uh, diverge from the conspiracy theories, the worst that's being concocted about Mr. Pelosi. And this is a man who barely survived this attack, uh, which was committed by someone hoping to trap Nancy Pelosi in her home. Uh, this is very close to an attempted political assassination, if, if not precisely that. And we're just okay with this. We're going to troll about it. It's, it is what Moynihan said, that we've defined what's deviant down. Well, it's the, one of the charges that have been brought against the assailant, of course, is elder abuse. I mean, the idea that you could make fun of an 82-year-old man being beaten in the head by a hammer and, and suffering f a fractured skull, having fun about 
that. I mean, it goes beyond nastiness. But as your article at CNN, uh, Michael D'Antonio points out, Donald Trump Jr. is his father's son. It's not just the mean machine of the Republican troll machine, but it's also people like Glenn Youngkin, the Virginia governor, who ran as a kind of moderate to appeal to suburban housewives and uh, wore his nice sort of fleecy jacket and seemed like not a fire-breathing Trumpster. He made an outrageously mean statement as well. So it's metastasizing into the entire Republican Party, this trolling. Yes, I I agree. And it's, uh, as I noted at the outset, it appears to work. The the thing that we're going to discover uh, on Election Day is how far it goes, whether the electorate in a general election can be swayed by this. Uh, This strange circumstance we're in with this election is that Democrats actually aided the primary campaigns of some more extreme Trumpist candidates, betting that the electorate wasn't that interested in this kind of politics and would reject it and be appalled by it. We may discover that that's not true, that uh, what worked for these people to gain nominations in primaries could work for them in this instance as well. The economy will be a huge element of that, but there is a blame the elite's sensibility as if Republicans who are far wealthier as candidates than Democrats aren't elite. Uh, But there's this unleashing of resentment. Um, I sometimes think of this as, you know, people who struggle uh, lashing out uh, for reasons that may be legitimate, they're, they're upset about real problems and their own feelings of frustration, but it's been channeled into this very destructive, uh, actually mass movement. There's uh, a couple of studies, one of the, which I mentioned to you about how meanness isn't created by the internet or politicians, it's channeled by them. There's another one that I read recently about emotional contagion in political groups and how, again, the most extreme feelings expressed in a political group, especially at a rally, are influence everyone in attendance and anyone who views it on television and pushes their reality into a more depraved viewpoint, and they become activated and angry, um, So this is a very powerful dynamic that we really have to worry about. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, Michael D'Antonio, you mentioned rallies. Trump is having a rally on Sunday in Florida, to which Governor Ron DeSantis is not invited. And there's an expectation that he might announce he's running for president because he expects to be indicted by the Department of Justice after the election do you think that's going to happen? And, I mean, sooner or later he's going to announce, isn't he? Not the least of which is uh, it'll be the big grift, right? All that money that he raises goes into his pocket. 
isn't it stunning? It is a big grift, and there's so much grifting in this world. A great many of the people who advocate this trolling kind of politics do it so that they can sell merchandise and can sell... You know, recently there was a a religious gathering uh, sold as a a kind of awakening in, in the sort that happened in the 19th and 18th centuries in America where pastors and religious activists uh, sparked a real surge in belief. And this one, uh, Eric Trump, I believe, was one of the speakers. So was Mike Flynn. And they charged admission. (laughs) So this is how how far the grifting has gone. And I think you're right to note where Trump is concerned in the presidency. So he wants to grift. He needs to always be raising the ante. That's something he talked to me about, that you have to push toward the extreme, always be willing to go lower than the other guy. Um, we were talking about any kind of conflict, and he made it sure, made me, uh, he made sure I understood that he was talking about you have to hit the other guy below the belt. And in this case, Declaring for president will push him push him into the spotlight again, uh, take some of the attention off of the actual election we're going to be uh, participating in, and enable the grift. and And I think um, he'll make a claim that he can't be prosecuted because he's a candidate for president. I, I think that's preposterous, and it's, there's no legal basis for it. But that will be another point around which to rally his most uh, fervent followers. Who are heavily armed. Oh, boy. Yeah. And and we've already had um, a bulletin from the um, Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and the Counterterrorism Center warning about election violence and targeting of election workers. So uh, I hate to end on that note, Michael D'Antonio, but this is what's happening to this country. And this is what we're dealing with in the one week to go before uh, the election. It's the world we live in, and it's a big challenge to the rest of us. And I guess we just have to gird ourselves and say we're never going to give up um, because we can't abide this kind of rage and expressions of rage that inevitably, inevitably lead to violence. Um so there's no there's no rest for us, but uh, at least we know we're, what we're called to do. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Michael D'Antonio. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Michael D'Antonio, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting at Newsday before going on to write many acclaimed books, including Atomic Harvest, The Truth About Trump, Never Enough, Donald Trump and the Pursuit of Success, and most recently he co-authored with Peter Eisner, High Crimes, The Corruption, Impunity and Impeachment of Donald Trump. And he's a contributor to CNN, where his latest article is, Donald Trump Jr. is his father's son. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining how conspiracy theories are entering the mainstream in the Republican discourse as we count down to a critical election a week away.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anne Nelson, who's a research scholar and previously taught journalism and public affairs at Columbia University. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground, and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, a New York Times book review editor's choice, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. She was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award, a native of Oklahoma. Her latest book is Shadow Network, Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. And she has a recent article at the New Republic, A Rare Peek Inside the Vast Right-Wing Conspiracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anne Nelson. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And some of the crazy stuff that's coming out now from Elon Musk, Dinesh D'Souza, uh, Trump, Donald Trump Jr., etc., promoting this conspiracy theory that Paul Pelosi, the man that attacked him with a hammer, they were in fact gay lovers having a spat. I mean, it's both cruel and, and stupid, but unfortunately, it seems like these kind of QAnon type conspiracy theories and conspiracy theories in general have metastasized into bedrock beliefs in the Republican Party. And here we are a week away from an election where there's almost 300 election deniers running for public office, many of whom will get elected. So it looks as if the Republicans are weaponizing conspiracy theories. They have been doing that for a while. Um, and it, it, it appears to be part of their toolkit. And if you look at my book, Shadow Network, you'll see that one of their strategists of the past, Paul Weyrich, really would state outright that the goal was to win. You didn't have to be right. You didn't have to be correct. You didn't have to be factual. You just had to be effective. And they've been using that playbook for a while, but it's really gone into overdrive recently. Well, it feels like one of the main proponents, of course, is Elon Musk, who's just purchased Twitter, which he clearly tried to get out of and he overpaid for. But nevertheless, now he has this influential social media platform. In many ways, he's a Trump-like troll. I mean, he's got real money as opposed to Trump being a phony billionaire. But he's also driven by ego. And your daughter, who's, who writes for Insider, profiled his, uh, what, how many, 10 children he has, all of whom with different women? I, I think it's nine children nine. by four women, but we should right. double check that. And it might have, it might be more now. <laughs> right. But he's like a European emperor from the 17th century, right? Well, that's that's what his father says. Um, <laughs> and there is this idea that, that money gives people the right to uh, really have their way with the rest of us. Uh, so, you know, one, one description of where we're going is plutocracy, where the wealthy have rights and, and the others don't. Well, he definitely fits into the definition of a plutocrat. And I'm astounded that he's taken seriously as a champion of free speech. The idea that the richest man in the world could take a public company private in the name of free speech. Why aren't we all tearing our hair out? I mean, it's so blatantly obvious that there's something wrong with that picture. Well, um, I've studied societies that are anti-democratic. I've lived under military dictatorships in the past. And I find that there are always some people tearing their hair out. 
Um, there are other people who are just looking at ways to profit from the situation. And the majority of the population tends to be passive. And I can only hope that on election day next week, uh, the electorate will be less passive than they have been. Because I do feel that we're at a crucial juncture in American history. Well, if a percentage of the 300 election deniers running for public office, many of them targeting Secretary of State's and, and voting machinery, if, if the Republicans take over the voting machinery, which they seem to be determined to do, and their their role model is Orban, the electoral autocrat in uh, Hungary, who's the hero of Tucker Carlson on the right, so they're following his playbook, it's pretty likely, isn't it, that by 2024, the votes of Democrats could become meaningless. So, in other words, we are heading towards a one-party state, and many people are describing it as American fascism. In fact, more people that I'm talking to, just you know, friends and people that I meet, they're using the 1930s analogies. I mean, how, how much do you feel, since you've written about the Nazis in Paris and Suzanne's children and people who resisted Hitler. Do you have any of those feelings that were in Weimar Germany in the 1930s? Oh, there there are many uh, parallels. And in fact, I, I just finished a new introduction to uh, a new edition of Red Orchestra that Bloomsbury Academic will be publishing next year. Um, so for example, at a certain point, Joseph Goebbels, uh, who was Hitler's minister of propaganda and public enlightenment, decided that the way to reach Germans most effectively was by taking control of radio. And in that way, Hitler could be Hitler's speeches could be delivered directly to the public without these pesky editors and reporters checking what he said. That's how Trump used Twitter. It was the unfiltered Trump speech. And when he lost that platform, he lost quite a lot. So this is another reason why the Elon Musk acquisition is so worrisome. And of course, it's, it's, it's straight out of what they call the dictator's playbook, because in the Soviet Union, they took control of the media as well. And that was one of Orban's early moves. He, he purged the Hungarian news of any objective reporters and replaced them with, with his lackeys. Well, I think if the Republicans take the House and possibly the Senate, aren't they going to be laying the path for Trump in 2024? I mean, he controls the party. I, I compare our situation to a bus hurtling towards a precipice. And there are various off-ramps. Um, some of them have been closed along the way, but there still are some off-ramps and some... some processes underway. We've got the courts. So there are legal processes, both against Trump and against the various measures of election and voter suppression. And those wheels are still turning. And there are some very good people fighting those fights. Um, you've got Mark Elias, who has a very uh, a, a number of lawsuits on the state level. You've got a group called Keep Our Republic, which is written about in the New Yorker this week, which is working on election integrity in, in Pennsylvania. And of course, these various lawsuits against Trump himself. Uh, now, 
step by step, the processes are not going well for him. Um, so, so what I see is that these forces are doubling down, but they are also trying to develop plan B in case they lose Trump as a candidate, which is why you have people taking, you know, various steps for the positioning of Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence, who are two of their aces in the hole. Somewhat different faces, though, I think, aren't they? I mean, uh, DeSantis is more of a Trump clone, trying to out-Trump Trump in many ways on the right, whereas at least Pence, you know, is not an election denier, and he did do the right thing on January the 6th. I think that's what they're counting on, that that Pence can be Trump light. But in terms of the policies they care about, and for the money people, it's about tax policies that further concentrate the wealth in the in the hands of the wealthiest less than one percent um and and cutting back on environmental regulations and and health and safety regulations and crippling public schools um and then on in social terms banning abortion completely and outright and perhaps taking measures against birth control, and definitely reversing marriage equality. And if you put those policies into a package, Mike Pence is there as completely or more so than the others. Well, Mark Elias, I saw him uh, on television, I think it was last night. He is absolutely alarmed about what's happening at the uh, level that we're talking about in terms of the Republicans trying to capture the electoral machinery in the country and put themselves in a position where they can make democratic votes meaningless. So his hair is on fire. So oh, what- there, there's so much hair on fire. And, well, it is quite possible it will get worse before it gets better. But what can be done, though, in the, this week to go? You know, I saw Obama speaking at a rally in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, trying to fire up the troops, and... He, he was so good, I thought, my God, why wasn't he deployed earlier? He gets it, and a lot of people get it, but as you pointed out earlier, there's a certain amount of passivity out there that simply is not able to grasp the threat of the moment, the clear and present danger that American democracy is on the line and that we are sort of drifting towards a form of American fascism. Yeah, I think... I'm not a baseball expert, but I I think that Obama's being used as what they call the closer. Um, and he was probably held back till you know the last period before the election in order to make the biggest impact. And in terms of what people can do, for the moment, what is before the American public is an election. And I do believe it will be an election that will be held in a, in a fair manner. It may be challenged, but I do think it will be a legitimate election. And it's a question of not just everyone voting, but everyone you know, getting on the phone to everyone they know, friends and family, and trying to explain to them what's at stake. And for the moment, I think that the way to look at it is not Republicans versus Democrats, but Republicans versus democracy. Because if you have people who are election deniers who'll say, I'll only honor the results of the election if I win, 
Uh, that's not going to play out in a democratic fashion in the future. And a lot of people just don't understand that. They're tuned out. They don't pay attention to the news or they don't have access to good journalism in a lot of the country. So that's where, at this juncture, a grassroots effort uh, is, is really important. And on top of that, of course, there was a bulletin put out last Friday by Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and the Counterterrorism Center warning about election violence and how it will be driven by both ideological disputes between winners and losers, if, if indeed there's any way to determine who's really a winner and who's a loser, if it really goes to hell in a handbasket, and, uh, and, and that there'll be real contestation not just on election day, we've already seen vigilantes in Arizona and, and in Michigan showing up at the polls and a Trump-appointed Federalist Society judge in Arizona thought that was okay, whereas the Department of Justice has made it clear that it's straightforward election intimidation to be standing in front of polling places fully armed in tactical outfits carrying guns in a largely Latino area of Maricopa County. And then on top of that, of course, just to touch on the judiciary, the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice Roberts, uh, just decided it wasn't a good idea to release Trump's tax returns, which the House Ways and Means Committee have been asking for for years, clearly uh, as a favor to Trump ahead of the elections. All of that and more. But I do think that there still is a possibility of avoiding the worst of the outcomes. Um, and as I said, this, this next election is going to be a critical juncture for, for the country. You know, these historical cycles have occurred before, but people usually go through great hardship if they, if, if they make the wrong choices. And, and part of what it, the problem is, is that the election deniers have not been adequately challenged on a local basis. Um, and they have an awful lot of dedicated media that's making their case for them. They've got radio stations, they've got social media, they've got digital platforms that are repeating and amplifying the lies. But, you know, back to a point you made earlier about people believing this, I think in a lot of cases, the QAnon crowd don't necessarily believe what they're saying. I don't know that they believe the 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 horrible statement about Paul Pelosi, but rather it's, it's, it's taking some glee and sowing chaos. I, I think that in a lot of these cases, they're knowingly spreading these lies just out of malice. Well, you're a journalist, you teach journalism, and journalists can only print what they can prove. They can't just propagate what they feel uh, what they think and what they believe and what might be true. And this is the problem that we have, isn't it? That there's a double standard that, you know, these the powerful publishers of today are these platforms like uh, Facebook and Twitter run by these dystopian kind of trolls, you know, often from the far right in the case of Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. There's no restraint on them. There's no responsibility of them as publishers. So isn't that what's happened to us? Isn't that what's, what's changed the media environment and allowed all of this 
drift towards a fact-free idiocracy, which is what modern America's become, and what Russia already is, I mean, in a way. Well, so, so journalism has professional practices, and, and there's good journalism and there's poor journalism. Reporting is supposed to follow certain rules, multi, multiple sources, uh, you know, really deep consideration for the facts. If you go to a newspaper opinion page, it is opinions, and it can be journalists' opinions. Um, so, so the problem is that a while ago, as the internet was coming of age, you had this idea of the citizen journalist as though there wasn't any training or discipline or professional practice involved, that anybody could just start writing about what they had for breakfast and they would be a journalist. And I like to point out that you would not take, you know, your need for a root canal to a citizen dentist, right? You'd want somebody who knew what they were doing. So what Facebook and these other platforms have done is serve as a delivery system uh, a massive instantaneous post office, if it, as it were. Whereas in the olden days, if the John Birch Society wanted to send out uh, you know, disinformation, there were a lot of steps to it and they couldn't do it at scale. What these platforms have done have, has been to make this dissemination instantaneous and on a massive scale and, very importantly, susceptible to influence by foreign bad actors. We know that the Russians have been using American digital platforms to sow disinformation and to intentionally create chaos. Chinese, the Iranians also, but, but to a different and lesser degree. So what, what we did with digital media is create this vast undefended frontier um, that, that invited attacks, both internal and external. But that's that you can trace this decision directly to Bill Clinton and Al Gore in terms of the Communications Act that they pushed through. And Section 230 exempts these platforms from the responsibility that publishers have. I mean, you know, I can't just say what I think or what I feel because I can get sued. And that's the case with all publishers. And that's why you have journalistic discipline. And that's why you have fact checkers and lawyers. But no such restraint. There's obviously no restraint on Elon Musk. Yeah, and he's not necessarily, well, I mean, in some cases he's creating the content, but his real mischief is created where he, he has a platform that appears as though it's going to be uh, uncurated. Uh, as, as your listeners probably know, since he took over, there's been a barrage of anti-Semitic content that's that's been coursing through Twitter. And in the past, it, it would have been, there would have been people at Twitter looking at it and taking it down for being offensive content. We can't tell whether this is just a particularly Wild West interregnum at Twitter or whether this is going to be the way it goes. Um, but I think the, the fact of the matter is that you don't want a single person to be in control of such a powerful platform any more than it was good for, for Germany to have Joseph Goebbels control all of the content on the national radio system. But just in closing, what about closing the Section 230 loophole of the, of the Communications Act? 
Oh, the Communications Act needs a total overhaul. Uh, soup to nuts. People were writing legislation at that time before they understood the nature of the medium, much less having any idea of where it was going. So everybody who's deeply involved in digital media from an ethics standpoint and from a content standpoint just says, you know, we need to sit down and look at it as it exists now and say, what does society need? And not just leave it as a free-for-all for the people with, with the greatest fortunes. Well, Ann Nelson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Ann Nelson, who's a research scholar and previously taught journalism and public affairs at Columbia University. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground, and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, a New York Times book review editor's choice, and Suzanne's Children, Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris, which was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. She's a native of Oklahoma. Her latest book is Shadow Network, Media Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. And she has a recent article at the New Republic, a rare peek inside the vast right-wing conspiracy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update on today's election in Israel, which is trending towards a victory for Benjamin Netanyahu to reclaim power and preside over one of the most right-wing governments in the country's history. There's a great and a bloody fight around this whole world tonight In the battle of bombs and shrapnel rain Hitler told the world around he would tear our union down But our union's gonna break them slavery chains And our union's gonna break them slavery chains I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky Could see every farm and every town I could see all the people in this whole wide world That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down That's a union that'll tear the fascists down Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Guy Ziv, a professor at American University School of International Service, where he teaches courses on U.S.-Israel relations, the Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, and he has worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. And he's the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres, and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Guy Ziv. Thank you for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Guy. And do you think that we're going to have change in Israel, or is it going to be the same old, same old? I mean, uh, if the trends from the exit polls continue, it looks as if Benjamin Netanyahu will be back in power, presiding over one of the most right-wing governments in the country's history. Perhaps. This is, as you know, the fifth uh, election in the last uh, four and uh, sorry three and a half years and uh, but it appears to be different than the other ones um, as you point out the exit polls do point to a victory for the religious right in general and Netanyahu in particular however uh, it's important to note that in the past exit polls have been off um, and in this case 
What's especially interesting is that one of the Arab parties, Balad, which is the Arab Nationalist Party that decided to run on its own, uh, may be on the verge of crossing the electoral threshold. Uh, so the electoral threshold is 3.25%, and they appear to be very close. If that happens, that would change the map dramatically and possibly uh, prevent the formation of a Netanyahu-led government. So on the other side of the coin, uh, from the Arab party, you have this new far-right party, Jewish Power, that believes that Israel should be a Jewish state, but not necessarily a democracy. That's right. So this is one of the big stories, if not the big story, um, of this election, the uh, Ben Gvir effect. Itamar Ben Gvir is a uh, neo-Kahanist, Kahana being the rabbi who was uh, barred from serving in the Knesset um, after a very tumultuous term given uh, his overt uh, racism and bigotry. And uh, Ben Gvir is a disciple of his and has a history of making very inflammatory comments and essentially being part of that uh, radical right movement. Now, he was uh, essentially a marginal figure until Netanyahu, who was facing a very tough re-election prospect, decided to bring him in. So essentially, uh, we're talking about him and we're talking about this party because there's one person who is responsible for bringing him in, and that is Netanyahu, who both orchestrated his political entry and then orchestrated the merger of his party with another far-right party. And in so doing, not only brought them in, but really legitimized uh, a force that had been seen as uh, as uh, too extreme for even right-wing governments. You know, in the past, uh, Yitzhak Shamir, other... Israeli uh, prime ministers from the Likud, from the right, would um, walk out of the Knesset plenary when a uh, Kahana spoke, when one of these people spoke. They didn't even want to um, to dignify them with uh, by by staying in the uh, in the room to hear them out. Uh, whereas Netanyahu actually brought them in to try to shore up uh, his block and. Um, and uh, as part of his political survival strategy, essentially. So, Dr. Geizib, let's talk then about the exit polls, uh, three of which seem to predict that Netanyahu's Likud party will finish first with uh, between 30 and 31 seats and be able to put together a wider coalition of right-wing parties to win uh, 61 or 62 seats in the 120-seat Knesset parliament. And on the other side, you've got Prime Minister Yair Lapid's Yesh Atid. It's supposed to win 22 to 24 seats and be able to cobble together an alliance of 54 to 55 seats. So what would it take? I mean, if you do the math, they've got to pick up, what, about eight more seats, don't they? Yeah, it would be very, very difficult uh, for Lapid, the, the current prime minister, the caretaker prime minister, to form a government based on these uh, very, very tentative results. Um, I think the number one goal of his camp at this stage is to prevent Netanyahu, the opposition leader, from forming a government. Um, If that happens, then there could be a possibility of new elections in the spring. Believe it or not, this would be the the sixth election, not inconceivable. 
and, and then there are some uh, suggestions that perhaps, uh, and this is kind of a little bit pie in the sky thinking, but it's not inconceivable that uh, one of the other parties, uh, maybe one of the religious parties, uh, one of the ultra-Orthodox parties would agree to join uh, some sort of a centrist government. Um, I have a hard time believing that Lapid or Benny Gantz, the defense minister, would be willing to serve uh, in a national union government with Netanyahu, but it's really too soon to speculate until we actually see the results, the final results, which we won't know for another couple of days because of overseas votes and the soldiers' votes that still need to be counted. Uh, even after tonight, we're not going to know. Uh, once we see the final results, uh, I think we'll we'll have a much clearer idea of what are the different options here. So what's happening with Netanyahu's former right-wing ally, Natali Bennett, who broke with him back in 2021 to form the coalition uh, with Lapid's centrist party? Where does he stand now? Well, Natali, Natali Bennett, who's the... Um, you know, who was the prime minister until he handed over the reins to his deputy, Ayer Lapid. Um, he's and, and he, by the way, is right now the deputy. He's he's not he's staying this one out. He did not run in this election. Um, so he's kind of taking a break, a timeout. Um, and so he's he's not really playing a, a role here. So I just again trying to figure out how they could cobble together enough seats on the other side to stop. Netanyahu. So is there a mathematical way out of this or? Very or difficult. I mean, are we I talking about miracles here? Probably miracles. Um, I, it's it's so Benny Gantz, who is, um, as I said, the defense minister and um, was in the same party with Lapid um, until they kind of split ways and uh, ran as kind of a center. He was trying to who was trying to attract center-right uh, voters. Um, this is uh, often referred to as the General's Party because uh, Gantz brought in Agadi Eisenkot, who's a former IDF chief of staff. Um, and there's another general or two in that party as well. So the idea was uh, to kind of attract soft-right uh, voters who did not want to uh, see Netanyahu's prime minister. And Gantz's strategy is to suggest that he... And only he can uh, form a government by bringing in the religious parties, the ultra-Orthodox uh, parties that are kind of seen as Netanyahu's natural allies. And he can kind of break this mold, break the gridlock, and form a broader government. But even when you look at those options, you see that uh, the chances of that happening are very, very low. There's no real indication that the ultra-Orthodox parties are interested in doing this. Gantz doesn't seem to have done all that well um, in this election. He might have gotten 11 seats or so, but not, you know, not quite enough to to uh, be a kingmaker here. And uh, moreover, the ultra orthodox parties are not going to be willing to sit with other parties that are part of the current caretaker government. For example, Lieberman uh, is not somebody who they would be willing to sit with. And Lapid himself is not somebody that they're necessarily willing to sit with. So the math would be very, very complicated, um, very difficult to see a scenario where this would happen. But, you know, stranger things would happen, uh, have happened. So, for example, we didn't know until um, the last until after the last elections that uh, Ra'am, the Islamist party, is going to be joining a Lapid 
and, and Bennett government, right? I mean, that was something that was uh, unheard of. So, um, so I wouldn't rule out that happening or something like that happening. But at this point, uh, you're right. The numbers make it extremely tricky for Lapid or Gantz to form an alternative uh, government. And what is the impact or the lack of impact of the uh, corruption trial now going on uh, where Netanyahu is on trial for corruption? There would be uh, a tremendous impact on this trial if Netanyahu forms a government and if uh, his loyalists um, will uh, enact what they call the French law and basically make Netanyahu immune as prime minister from uh, from facing this trial. And, and Ben Gvir, the, the, the kind of far right radical I, I spoke of earlier, has already said that if he's um, given a top post, he will work to not only pass the French law, but to make sure it's retroactive so that Netanyahu uh, doesn't have to deal with it. And uh, this is something that's worrisome because there have been a lot of indications that Netanyahu and his political allies want to make dramatic changes to the justice system. So beyond Netanyahu and his trial, this could have uh, severe implications for the rule of law and for Israeli democracy more generally. So when I mentioned earlier about this new party, Jewish Power, making it clear that they're more interested in Israel being a Jewish state as opposed to being a democracy, how pervasive is that feeling? Because what we're discussing now in a sense, is a kind of hyper-democracy, isn't it, Guy? In the sense that you have endless elections in Israel because of all of these small parties and the need to form coalitions and ever-shifting coalitions. So I find it a little ironic that in a way the country's paralyzed by too much democracy, arguably. At the same time, there's a movement to make the Jewish state the priority as opposed to a multicultural democracy. I think that that's a pretty good way of describing it. The difference between Ben Gvir and his far right, uh, the far right ideologues, let's let's call them that, and the uh, other Zionist parties is that for Ben Gvir and the religious right, Judaism is the essential element of Zionism. And if that comes at the expense of democracy, so be it, uh, which is what also makes them very dangerous, right? For uh, mainstream Zionist parties, Zionism is traditionally about both having a, demo- uh, having a Jewish and democratic state. And that's where I think uh, that, that's where we see democracy uh, being particularly challenged in the Israeli case due to the gridlock, due to the paralysis and due to the rise of the radical right. Well, Henry Kissinger once said Israel doesn't have a foreign policy, they just have domestic politics, referring to these frail coalitions. So is this the new normal? It's hard and it's hard to tell if this is the new normal. It's been the new normal for several years now, uh, and it may be the new normal in the coming year or two as well. It's really unclear. I mean, Netanyahu is really the most significant uh, player in Israeli politics in the last quarter century. And so, so much of what we're seeing is a product of Netanyahu's um, uh, style, uh, his approach, and his instincts for political survival, which have really changed the rules of the game. 
And just as we're seeing American, the fragility of, of American democracy, uh, we're see, you know, we saw it in Brazil, we see it around the world. Um, the, the same thing goes for Israel, uh, where you have kind of a democratic camp. Uh, and, and, and by the way, that democratic camp isn't just the, uh, the left, which is kind of truncated in Israel these days. It also includes elements of the right and the political center. Uh, and they're fighting for to preserve Israeli democracy. And this is uh, the, the challenge of our times. Well, Dr. Geisab, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Guy Zib, who's a professor at American University School of International Service, where he teaches courses on U.S.-Israel relations, the Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, and he worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. And he's the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres, and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Sing it to me.